Well, uh, blessed are the persecuted. Blessed are the persecuted. That is the title for our current sermon series. Uh, We are looking at various uh, Bible characters who suffered persecution for their faith in God. And we're doing this in order to discover how God uses persecution for the good of His children, to uh, perfect us, to promote His gospel, but we're also learning how to respond to persecution in a godly, Christ-like manner. The motivation for this series is the fact that hostility towards the Christian faith is increasing, even in our own country. In 2 Timothy, uh, the last book the Apostle Paul wrote before he was beheaded for his faith in Christ, he warned that we are to expect hostility towards Christians to intensify in the last days. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, he clearly tells us, persecution is inevitable for those who are determined to live really Christian lives. Now, the first Bible character we looked at in this series uh, was Joseph, who suffered 13 long years of slavery and imprisonment uh, before God, of course, elevated him to be a ruler in Egypt. The primary lesson that we learn from Joseph is that behind all persecution is the unseen hand of the sovereign God accomplishing His plan in the life of His people. And then last Sunday, we started in on our second lesson, the second character, which was who? David, which was David. Uh, And the primary lesson that we're discovering in the life of David is how God used his persecution to perfect the faith and the character of his child. Now, the approach that we are taking in this sermon series is very, very simple. Uh, We begin each lesson by telling the story of the Bible character, uh, focusing especially on the time of persecution. And then we draw several lessons from their story that we can apply to our lives today. Now, last Sunday, I spent most of our time telling David's story. And I'm not going to do that again, but let me just sum it up this way. Overnight, and I mean literally overnight, David goes from being a national hero in in Israel to public enemy number one. Uh, David's personal integrity, his heroic feats on the battlefield, his loyalty to King Saul, all of that is rewarded with persecution. When King Saul becomes jealous of David and views David as a threat, at this point David literally becomes a fugitive on the run in the Judean wilderness for, listen now, for over 10 years. For over 10 years. But it is during those 10 long years of adversity and persecution that God prepares David to fulfill his God-given destiny, which was to be king of Israel, where he reigned for over 40 years. So follow in your notes now, and I hope you picked up a copy of the sermon notes, as we look at three truths uh, from David's life on how God uses persecution to perfect the faith and character of his child, uh, from which we will draw three lessons for our lives today. Now, also keep in mind, this is very, very important as we go through this entire series. We're focusing on persecution, but every single single thing we say applies equally 
dealing with adversity, any adversity. So again, these truths apply both to persecution and adversity. Any time that you're in a period of trial or pain or suffering. Now last Sunday we did at least cover the first truth. So I, I do want to begin with a review of that truth and then we'll complete this lesson on uh, David uh, this morning. And then our next lesson is going to be, it's going to be an interesting one, on the prophet uh, Jeremiah. I think you'll be amazed to see the intense suffering this man experienced over 40 long years of ministry. The first truth that we saw last week is that God uses persecution, uses adversity to remove all human supports. God uses persecution. He uses adversity to remove all human supports. In other words, as it says there in your sermon notes, God literally kicks out from under us all the crutches, anything I lean on for support, which can become a substitute for Him. In other words, God says, Andy, when trouble comes, when difficulty comes, when adversity comes, I don't want you to develop the habit where you're looking horizontally to try to find some human support. I want you to learn to immediately look vertically up to me, to put your trust in me. And then we looked at the crutches that God kicked out from underneath David. And uh, again, this is just a review, so I'll just mention these. We saw that God kicked out from under him the crutch of his position. He was a military commander in Israel that carried with it tremendous material prosperity. So in a moment, he loses his position, he loses his means to support himself, and he's thrown into utter, absolute, destitute poverty, again, a fugitive on the run. He immediately, we saw last week, runs to his wife, and yes, she helped him escape a trap King Saul had set in his home, uh, but he never is reunited, reconciled with his wife again. He runs from his wife to exactly who you would think he would run to, to Samuel, his spiritual mentor, his spiritual leader. Saul discovers that he's there, David has to flee. He never sees Samuel again. Samuel dies before he can ever see him again. Where does he run then? He runs to his closest friend, to Jonathan, the son of Saul. And of course, I have that very uh, tearful meeting that many of you are familiar with. But again, David is forced to flee into the Judean wilderness, and he never sees Jonathan again. Jonathan is killed in battle before they can ever be reunited. And then the last crutch that God kicked out from under him was his self-respect. And we won't go into that entire story, but that is when David becomes so low, you remember, he actually seeks refuge from the enemies of Israel, the Philistines, and uh, got uh, just devastated with his self-esteem and self-respect. So God literally kicked out from under David every single crutch he could lean on. Now think about this. Every single person he knows either becomes his enemy or is absolutely helpless to help him. David is totally alone. He's isolated with absolutely no rescue in sight. David actually says early on in this time of persecution, there is hardly a step between me and death. From David's perspective, he is nothing more than a dead man walking. And at this point, which is the lowest point in David's life to date, he staggers into a dingy, damp cave, a cave called the Cave of Adullam in the Judean wilderness to hide from King Saul and his men who are hot on his trail. So what is the lesson to be learned? You see it there in your sermon notes that we looked at last week. Getting crutches kicked out from under you is frightening, and it is. It's terrifying, but let it cause you to lean on God, not look for another crutch. In other words, learn the lesson that God's intending to teach you, to not look horizontally, but to look vertically. See, God knows, listen, beloved, God knows it is only 
as you lean on him, that you're able to develop a close and intimate relationship with him. But if you're leaning on someone or something else for ultimate fulfillment in life or to meet your needs, you're not leaning on God. And this is why God appears so ruthless. And it does appear ruthless at times. In kicking crutches out from under you. He only wants you to be near him. To lean and rest on his everlasting arms. Now we saw last Sunday that during this period in David's life, he wrote, we know at least four psalms. Because we're actually told that he wrote these psalms in the subscription of the psalm uh, during this time. That's Psalm 34. 56, 57, and 142. And it's in these psalms we discover the lessons that God taught David, which are the same lessons God is trying to teach us today. Now look in your notes at what David wrote in Psalm 56, 3. When I am afraid, what does he say? I'll put my trust in thee. Verses 9 through 11, this I know. That God is for me, in God whose word I praise, in the Lord whose word I praise, in God I have put my trust. I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? See, it was only when God kicked the crutches out from underneath David, only when God removed all the human supports that David had the opportunity, as we see here, to learn to put his trust in God. Look at the second truth that we learn from David's life. God will use persecution and adversity not only to remove all human supports, but number two, God breaks all self-reliance to create total God-reliance. God breaks all self-reliance to create total God-reliance. And how does he do that? Taking me into the dark cave of despair. Taking me into the dark cave of despair. See, God not only has to remove all the human supports we look to to lean on, you know what his greatest challenge is? Yes, it's to break us of our self-reliance, our tendency to trust ourselves, our ingenuity, our wisdom, our strength, our abilities. And God does this by taking us into a dark cave of despair. For David, it was a literal cave. The cave of Adullam, as we mentioned in the Judean wilderness. For us, it won't be a literal cave, but it will be a set of circumstances that God will allow you to go through where everything appears hopeless. Where we come literally to the end of our strength to the end of our wisdom, to the end of our ability to cope with it any longer, to endure it for another second, where we are ready to just throw in the towel and give up. And it is only in that dark cave of despair that we learn, apart from God, we can do nothing. Where we learn to look to God, not for personal gratification, but for God's glorification, for God's glorification. Look at the description of the dark cave of despair there in your notes, and notice uh, all the verses are from the book of Job, because Job was a man who knew very, very well the dark cave of despair. And the, in the first description of this dark cave, it, is, it, it, it involves dark days of disappointment. Dark days of disappointment. Look at what Job said in uh, Job 30. He says, so I looked for good, but evil came instead. I waited for the light, but darkness fell. My heart, don't miss this now. This is what he's feeling. This is what he's experienced. My heart is troubled. It's restless. In other words, he's agitated. Days of suffering, he says, torment me. I walk in gloom without sunlight. So the first thing you experience in that dark cave of despair is disappointment. And let's be very, very honest. It's disappointment in God. 
what happens when God allows you to get into that dark cave, just like it happened with David when he crawled into that dingy, damp cave of Odulam. Your initial struggle is, God's failed me. I mean, how could God let this happen to me? As a child, I thought God was loving. I thought God was all-powerful. Well, if he's loving, he's all-powerful. I mean, how in the world did I end up in this position? How, how, why am I suffering like this? Why, why is there just darkness, no sense of his presence, where, where, where I'm, I'm, I'm just suffering, just this incredible torment, where, where there's nothing but trouble, and I'm just restless and agitated, no sense of peace at all. And that's the first thing that we struggle with. And let's be honest. Again, it's disappointment with God. But look at the second description of the cave. It's not only dark days of disappointment, disappointment with God, but dark days of distress. Dark days of distress. Look at a couple of verses out of Job 19 and Job 23. Job says, God has blocked my way, so I cannot move. He has plunged my path into darkness. Darkness is all around me, thick impenetrable darkness is everywhere. Ron Dunn was a great Bible teacher. Uh, we actually, many, many years ago, had the opportunity to have Ron Dunn come uh, to Edgewood Baptist Church. After his son, his adult son, committed suicide, uh, Ron described his dark days of distress this way. And anyone who's been in that dark cave of despair will be able to relate to this. You may not have lost a child, you may have, but you'll be able to relate because of painful circumstances you were thrust into that created this. This is what he wrote, the dark night of the soul, when no light is thrown on the why of your suffering. When the usual means of grace, prayer, worship, singing, God's word, have no effect on the drooping spirit. When you are numb to spiritual things. When the tried and true formulas from books and seminars sound hollow and empty. When you discover there are some things you cannot praise or pray your way out of. You can rebuke the devil, plead the blood, station angels, but nothing moves the darkness. As Job said, darkness is just all around me. Thick, impenetrable darkness is everywhere. And that's not all that's involved in this dark cave of despair. Look at the next description. It's dark days of doubt. Dark days of doubt. Doubting self, doubting God, doubting everything. Job 12, 25, they grope in the darkness without a light. He makes them stagger like drunkards. Now, this gives me the opportunity to say something that's very, very important. You need to understand when you hit painful circumstances that drive you into that dark cave of despair where you're struggling with disappointment, you're struggling with distress, and here comes a doubt, you need to know, yes, God's at work, as we're saying. Remember now, God's at work to break you of self-reliance, to teach you God-reliance. But realize Satan is going to be at work too. And Satan's going to be the one trying to feed that doubt, trying to put a wedge between you and God. He will drive home that thought that you're struggling with, that God has failed you, that God has disappointed you, that God has let you down. He will try to bring bitterness into your heart over life's circumstances and the people around you that have caused, from your perspective, the difficulty. So just know, Satan's going to be working overtime in that cave of despair as well as God. You need to understand that. And, and, and you know, the, one of the things, you know, I told you that as we go through this series, there are going to be ten different Bible characters we look at. And you need to be listening carefully for the common denominators in all ten. And one of the things we see both in Joseph and David, 
is when they got totally in the dark without a ray of light. They never stopped trusting God. Now they struggled. They complained. They were hurting. They were confused. They were perplexed in their pain. But they kept going to God because they realized ultimately that's the only place we're going to find any answers. And then look at the last description of this dark cave of despair. It's dark days of depression. Dark days of depression. Job 10, verse 22. It is a land as dark as midnight, a land of gloom and confusion where even the light is dark as midnight. You ever been there? Cynthia Swindoll is the wife of Chuck Swindoll. She has had her struggles with depression. And this is what she wrote describing her dark days of depression. She said, depression, black as a thousand midnights in a cypress swamp, loneliness that is indescribable, confusion regarding God, frustration with life and circumstances, the feeling that you have been abandoned, that you are worthless, unlovable, the pain is excruciating. Again, Job wrote, it is a land as dark as midnight. It is a land of gloom, depression, and confusion, where even the light is dark as midnight. Now, here's the million-dollar question that you see there in your notes. Well, how long will God keep me in the dark cave of despair? Now, now keep in mind now, why are you there? From God's, but why has He allowed it to break your self-reliance, to teach you a God-reliance? So, how long is He going to keep you there? Well, I can't give you the length of days or months or years. It's 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 sort of conditioned on uh, how quickly the brokenness comes, and we can put up a lot of resistance, right? <laughs> And see, brokenness, that just means I get to that place where my self-reliance is broken, my pride and my selfishness, where I'm tender in the hands of God. That I, I don't offer God resistance, where there's that sweet, tender surrender to Him. But here are the conditions. This tells you when, how long He's going to keep you in that cave of despair. Look at the first one. Until I get so low... There's no place to look but up. That's how long he's going to keep you in that dark cave of despair. In other words, how long are you going to keep looking for crutches? How long are you going to keep looking horizontally for a rescue? And God's going to sit back and he's going to wait. He's just going to, every time you look for another crutch, boom, he'll kick it out. And he's going to appear ruthless. I mean, he's going to hurt you. It is frightening. And God says, I'm just waiting for you to look up to me, the ultimate source of strength and power and might and grace and mercy. I am Jehovah, the great I am. Whatever you need, I am. Look to me and to me alone. Look at what David wrote in Psalm 142. There in your notes. Again, we're seeing the lessons he learned. And David learned this lesson in the cave of Adullam. He says, there is no escape for me. No one cares for my soul. I cried out to thee, O Lord. I said, thou art my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Give heed to my cry, for I am brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors, for they are too strong for me. See, David finally comes to that place. He stops running to another crutch. And he says, I've come to the end of myself. Not a single person cares. There is no human support. You're my only hope. And he looks up to God to put his trust in him. You know, a great example of this, would you take your Bibles 
this is not in your notes, but a great, great New Testament example of this is 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Second, I know uh, in Sunday school you're working through the book of 2 Corinthians. You would have already covered this section, but let me just remind you of it. This is the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul, this great champion of the faith, right in the middle of God's will, following God, filled with the Holy Spirit. But Paul had difficulty with self-reliance as well. Paul, just, he, just like God, you and I, he needed the dark cave of despair. He needed to be broken of self-reliance to learn total God-reliance. And you see this right here. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8. He says, For we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction, which came to us in Asia. He doesn't tell us what the affliction is, but it was terrible. It was awful. A painful set of circumstances that drove him into despair because he says that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength so that we even despaired even of life. That's the dark cave of despair. He says, verse 9, Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves. But notice the next phrase. He gives us the reason why God allowed him to go through these painful circumstances. Why God allowed him to go into the dark cave of despair. He says, in order that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a peril of death and will deliver us, he on whom we have set our hope. There it is right there. So I don't care if you're the Apostle Paul, you're King David, Joseph, every child of God, because we're, we're, yes, we're saved, but we're still sinners, right? Saved by grace. And we still struggle with pride and selfishness, self-reliance. And the principles we're looking at, it's going to be true for every believer. Because God wants to teach you to lean on Him. To develop a sweet intimacy and closeness with Him. Look at the second place God is waiting for you to come to. Before He takes you out of that dark cave of despair. Not only do you get so low there's no place to look but up but until exalting Christ becomes more important than escaping the cave. I cannot think of a greater lesson that, that God wants to teach every believer. He wants to bring me to the place that when I come into painful, difficult, hard circumstances, more important than escaping those circumstances is exalting Jesus Christ in the midst of those circumstances. Psalm 57 is another psalm David wrote to share what God taught him through his cave experience. Look at verses 7 and 11. He says, My heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. I will sing. Yes, I will sing praises. Where is he singing now? In the cave. Singing praises to God. And what is he singing? Be exalted above the heavens, O God. Let thy glory be above all the earth. And he wrote that and he sang that before there was any rescue in sight. While he was still in the dark cave of despair. While he was still a fugitive on the run. Public enemy number one. Now, I, I want to make this even more practical. I want to try to get this to where the rubber really meets the road. What we're seeing is that God is at work in our lives. He's at work to break self-reliance and to teach us God-reliance. We've seen that he accomplishes this by taking us into a dark cave of despair where he uses painful circumstances to break us, to break us of our tendency to trust in our own wisdom, our own strength, and to learn to rely on God alone. We have seen brokenness occurs, brokenness occurs, when I become so low in my failure and despair that I realize no human support is going to help me and I look up to God. And when exalting Christ becomes more important than escaping my painful circumstances. But how does a person practically demonstrate that they're looking up to God? Even when life circumstances have taken them to a very very low place in life. How do they 
practically demonstrate that exalting Jesus Christ is now more important than escaping the dark cave of their painful circumstances. In other words, what fundamental change occurs in a person who has truly been broken of self-reliance to walk in God-reliance? That, that would bring all of that about, looking up to God, Christ's exaltation being more important than my escape. Two areas of change that brokenness brings. In a person's thought life and in a person's prayer life. And this really gets it where the rubber meets the road right here. In terms of their thinking, this is what happens when brokenness occurs. A person realizes the importance of immediately turning from anxious thoughts to place their thoughts on God's Word. Now listen to me, beloved. Listen to me carefully. Anxiety, without exception, anxiety is evidence that your heart is divided. Anxiety is evidence that you have some security blanket you're holding on to other than God. That you do have some other crutch that you're leaning on other than God. And you know that's true because it is the fear of losing whatever that security blanket is or that that's the source of your anxiety. And David learned, David learned in the pain of his experience in the cave of despair to immediately turn from anxious thoughts to God's thoughts. We already saw in Psalm 56, verse 3, he says, when I am afraid, what? I will put my trust in you. See, brokenness, hear me now, brokenness does not mean you're never again going to struggle with disappointment. It doesn't mean that you're never going to again struggle with distress or doubt or depression. But what brokenness does is that when the disappointment comes or the distress or the thoughts of doubt, or the feelings of depression, that broken person immediately turns to God's Word. He's not going to allow himself to have a pity party. He's not going to grovel in that depression and in that low place. He's going to turn to God to put his trust in God. And brokenness not only brings a change in a person's thought life, but also in their prayer life, which is evidence. Here it is, which is evidence in a newfound surrender to God. And here it is right here. A surrender, this is what brokenness brings to a believer's life. A surrender that gives God the freedom to arrange the affairs and circumstances and relationships in my life in the way that He deems best to accomplish His plans and purposes in me. And a broken person is able to do that without fear. See, when you're not broken, we fear surrender. And we fear surrender because we haven't learned to lean on God. Because in leaning God, you develop a closeness and intimacy with God. I suddenly realize He's the one who loves me most. He loves me with an eternal love that will never fail me, that will never let me go. But yes, it's not, never going to let me off. And the one who loves me most, he knows what is best for me. So it's foolish to do any other thing than to give him the freedom to arrange the affairs of my life. See, it was, it's, it's, let me say it this way. It's not, when you become broken, it's not that you stop praying for specific things. It's not that you even stop praying for certain outcomes, but here it is. Now, more important than the outcome is the exaltation of Christ. I'm able to ask God for something, but I'm also able to say, God, you know what? If you know, if by answering this prayer, it would actually send, send leanness to my soul, then don't answer this prayer. 
because the nearness of God is my good. Whatever draws me nearer to you is good for me. So, Lord, I accept it from your hand as that which is for my ultimate spiritual benefit and your greater glory. See, this is resting in a sovereign God. And it brings peace in any and every storm. Amen? Are you hearing what we're saying? So, uh, let me... I'm in a difficult marriage. It's falling apart. And it's painful. And I flat don't like my mate. Or I'm in a tough financial situation. Where it seems everything's crashing down on me. Or it might be a health crisis. It could be a million and one different things. A broken person in the midst of that pain, in the midst of that dark cave of despair, they focus not on the circumstances, but Christ. And not just Christ, but in their life developing Christ-like character. Seeing that God is at work. God's using this situation to break me of my self-reliance, to teach me a God-reliance, to look to Him for His exaltation, and to teach me deeper depths of Christ's character. To teach me how to love as Christ loved. Teach me how to persevere as Christ persevered. To teach me how to deny self as Christ denied self for the good of others. To teach me how to take up my cross and follow Him even as He took up His cross for me. That's what brokenness does. Look in your notes at the lesson for us today. Here it is. Don't confuse the darkness of the cave for God deserting you. God isn't deserting you. He's capturing you. That's what's happening. See, our tendency is we get in that dark curve and we think God's forsaken us. No, he said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. I'm at work. Just like he saw in Joseph. Behind all persecution, all adversity, is the unseen hand of God. A sovereign God accomplishing His plan. Will you trust me? Even if you can't trace my hand, are you willing to trust my heart? So He's not deserting you, but yes, He's he's trying to capture you to where you become totally submitted and surrendered to His authority. Where you see God not as a means to get what you want, but where you see now, I'm God's means to accomplish His ends. And where it's not about getting the applause of others, but seeking the approval of God. To be able to hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter now the joy of your Lord. Look at the third truth as we close up. And this brings it full circle. God breaks me. In other words, what's God doing in all of this? God breaks me for the spiritual benefit of of others. That's what he's doing. He breaks me for the spiritual benefit of others. Look at the next point in your note. God brings people into my life. You know, it's, he takes me into that dark cave of despair. He breaks the self-reliance, teaches me a God-reliance, where now I'm looking vertically to God. Well, now more important to me than escaping my circumstances is exalting Christ. Now more important to me than anything else is developing Christ-like character, no matter what that process might have to bring me. And there's that sweet surrender to God where I give Him the freedom. Once you get to that place, God will start bringing people into that dark cave with you. See, God brings people into my life so I can teach them what God taught me. You know, going back to... uh, if you still have your Bibles open to 2 Corinthians chapter 1, we see the principle there, right? Look at verse 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction. Why? So that we may be able to comfort those who are in affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. There it is right there. God says, I let you go through that dark cave of despair for the benefit of others, to get you to the place where you could be my instrument to draw others to Christ, to strengthen other believers in their walk for God, so that you would impart to them the same comfort and grace I gave to you. And this is exactly what God did in David's life. 
Look in your notes at 1 Samuel chapter 22, verse 2. And everyone who is in distress, and everyone who is in debt, and everyone who is discontented, gathered to him, gathered to David. And he's talking about gathered to in the cave of Adullam. In other words, God just started bringing them by the droves. And notice their description. A rowdy bunch, right? I mean, people in distress, in debt, discontented. And he became captain over them. Now there are about 400 men with him. Now listen, listen very, very carefully. Do you understand what's happening from God's perspective? The cave, that dark cave of despair, became David's boot camp where he learned to lead others in preparation for becoming the king of a nation, the nation of Israel. And do you remember something we said last week about a common denominator with Joseph and David we don't need to miss, we need to apply to our lives? Joseph, 13 long years of slavery and imprisonment, then elevation to what? Rule, to lead people. David, 10 plus years of severe persecution in the Judean wilderness and then raised to rule, to lead people. You and I are destined to rule. Did you know that? You and I are destined to reign and rule with Jesus Christ. That is the eternal destiny that God has for the church, his people, the body of Christ, the bride of Christ. We will literally be side by side with Christ in an eternal romance as his queen to reign, to rule, to administer, administrate his universe. And you need to understand Life on planet earth is a boot camp. It's not the end. When we make it out like this is it. God's preparing me for my eternal destiny. Knowing that I'm going to reign and rule with Christ, there needs to be a compatibility of character between Christ and his bride, Christ and his church, Christ and his queen. So God uses the persecution. He uses the adversity to purify us, to teach us his character, to teach us to trust. And if you want to ask, and it's there in your notes, what did David teach them when, he, when God brought them into the cave? What did he teach them? Well, we discover the answer in Psalm 34, which was another psalm written during this time in David's life. And I wish we could read the entire psalm, and I pray that you will. I pray this afternoon you'll find the time. It's not a very long psalm. Read it, and you'll see what David learned, and it's a psalm that he wrote as an instrument to teach those 400 men that came to him in the cave. But listen to verses, well, well you see there in your notes, verses 8, 9, 10, 11. He says, oh, taste, he's teaching them now, in the cave. This is what he's saying to them. Oh, taste and see, the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. For to those who fear him, there is no want, or you will not lack anything. They who seek the Lord shall not be in want of any good thing. Come, you children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. And then that next point in your notes, very significant. Those 400 men became David's mighty men of valor. Those 400 men that came to him discontented, griping, Selfish, overcome with life circumstances, bitter. He took those 400 guys and he taught them and he mentored them. And they became his 400 mighty men of valor. That, of course, if you're familiar with your Old Testament, every one of these men had such heroic feats alongside of David in the battlefield, on behalf of God's glory, on the behalf of God's kingdom. So here's the lesson. Here's the lesson right here. When God brings me to the end of myself, it is to transform my life to use it, not end it. When God brings me to the end of myself, it is to transform my life to use it, not end it. Would you bow with me in prayer?
I would have to imagine that there are those of you here this morning that right now you are in a dark cave of despair. That you're struggling with disappointment, you're struggling with distress, doubt, depression. And I hope God, I hope you've had an encounter with God this morning. I hope God has spoke to your heart that He has not deserted you, that He's allowing this in your life ultimately for your spiritual benefit, to break you of your self-reliance, to break you of the tendency of looking horizontally for another crutch to where you begin to vertically look to Him and to Him alone and learn to lean on Him and Him alone. And where you get to the place where exalting Christ is much more important than escaping the cave. And developing Christ-like character is much more important than having happy circumstances. And if you're in that dark cave, it is a process. It doesn't happen overnight. It didn't happen overnight with David. We talked about ten long years of suffering. Joseph, 13, in slavery and imprisonment. And you see this in virtually every Bible character throughout the Scripture, that God allows them to go through this to shape them, to mold them into instruments that He can use for His honor and His glory. So I'm, I, I'm just challenging you, if you're there, be honest with God. Start right there. Okay, God, I'm in a dark cave, and God, I'm struggling with you. I'm struggling with my circumstances. Acknowledge you can't handle it. But then also say, God, I know you have me here for a reason. And it's because you love me, and you're trying to draw me nearer to you, to know a deeper intimacy with you, in order that you will be able to use me as your servant. So, Lord, I'm just abandoning my life to you. Yes, I'm giving you the freedom to do whatever it takes, whatever measures are needed to bring me to that place of true brokenness where I would learn God-reliance, that I can't trust in myself but a God alone, as Paul said, who raises from the dead. So I'll just give you a moment, if you're in that dark cave of despair, just, just to respond to God. And then if you're not in that dark cave of despair right now, you either have been in the past or you're going to in the future. Uh, it's just our lot living on planet Earth and how God in His sovereignty has not chose to take us out, but to actually to use the pain, to use the injustice, to use the wrong, to use the difficulty, to use the pain, to mold, to shape, to fashion us. And so I would just encourage every single one of us in this room, if you're a believer, just to give God that freedom. God, not that i got to give you permission because you're God and you have all authority. But, Lord, I want to cooperate with you, so I give you the freedom. I don't want to resist you. I want to learn the lessons that you have for me. So, oh, oh, Brother Billheimer, some of y'all remember him. He wrote a great book called Don't Waste Your Sorrows. That's basically what I'm saying. Don't waste your sorrow. Don't waste your time in that dark cave of despair. Because you can waste it. You can fail to learn the lessons God has for you. You can become bitter. So ask God to give you the grace. God, don't let me waste my sorrow. Don't let me waste this time in the dark cave of despair. You accomplish the purpose you have for me. Father, what a remarkable, remarkable God you are. And Lord, you were way, way too infinite 
for us to understand with our finite minds. And Lord, we don't fully understand why in your sovereignty you chose to determine, to actually will that your children, saved by your grace, would not become immune from the suffering of this world, from injustice, from wrong, from pain, from financial crisis, health crisis, marriage crisis, relational. We go on and on and on. But in your sovereignty, you determine you would use those things ultimately for our good, as we've seen this morning, as we see in Romans 8, 28. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good. Not that he causes everything that happens. He didn't put that evil in King Saul's heart. He didn't put that evil in Joseph's brothers who nearly killed him and sold him into slavery. But God did give us a guarantee. I'm not going to let anything happen to you as my child that I can't use for your good and my glory. So will you trust me? And so, Lord, as weak and feeble as we are, we choose to trust you. We choose to put our faith, our hope in you, and our hope in you alone. So, Father, here we are. Do this for us individually. But, Lord, do this for our church family, collectively, as a church family, as a church body, as part of the bride of Christ, that we would be a church that would be filled with the light, life, and love of Jesus, to be broken, to release that light, life, and love upon a lost world, that others would be drawn to him. For it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.